Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. My guest today is Joshua Rood, co-founder and CEO of the hard kombucha company, Dr. Hops. Joshua, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure having you here. As with a number of my past several guests, I've met you at a conference and gotten to know you in person, and I think it's just wonderful that we're doing these conferences in person again, and then I'm glad to then bring these people onto my podcast afterwards. Yeah, it was great being with you in person as well and getting to share time and food and beverages and be real human beings again. (laughs) That was awesome. So I was grateful for you for being there. And grateful to be able to meet you there. So let's get into Dr. Hops. How did the business get started? Well, the original inspiration for the business was in 2015 in Berkeley. The craft beer scene and the craft beer business was really at the peak of its creativity, and it was so interesting and awesome. Just so many different beer styles, different companies, different brewers making amazing beer. It was very inspiring, and then there had already been you know, an incident with kombucha getting pulled from the shelves at Whole Foods because the alcohol content was a little higher than people thought. And one company in Michigan had started making a high alcohol kombucha, like 8%. And I thought it was the most interesting idea ever because I had spent many, many years in my 20s as a bartender and a barista and a liquor caterer. And I've also been a chef. And just it was obvious to me that the people of the world wanted this thing to happen, this health-conscious, live recreational kombucha. Kombucha was starting to take off too, but hard kombucha was not a thing, right? Just this one company out of Michigan. And it was something that I thought I could do really, really well, that I would love to do. And it was time to go for it. And that's what we decided to do. Love it. Great story. And you touched upon the craft beer industry. So do you think that the people interested in hard kombucha are those that are interested in craft beer or does it appeal more to people that prefer a different type of alcohol? Or is it just something itself? Does it appeal to people that typically hadn't drank alcohol before? Yeah, I don't think it has too many people drink alcohol that don't drink alcohol. That's certainly the most <laughs> the most strict of its aspects, right? It is alcohol. It's funny. I would say about roughly half of craft beer lovers are super into what we're doing. Probably a lot more than half are into what we're doing. But there are certainly quite a few beer lovers that are just all about beer and what beer really is and has been historically with malted barley as its foundation. And since we certainly don't have that, those people are not usually interested in what we're doing. Even if they like it, they're not interested, (laughs) right? So it's a pretty interesting mix. There are plenty of people who love beer, including myself and my co-founder, Tommy, who's the brewer. We love beer, but we also love all beverages. We're not all about beer and only beer. We love great wines and cocktails and everything, regular kombucha, anything that's going to be creative and 
interesting to drink and if it's alcohol it has a nice alcohol effect we're into all of it so i think a lot of people are like that especially now information is so freely available people are exposed to so many different things i think most consumers now are open to all sorts of variety including hard kombucha and that would be me because i like beer and wine not so much some of the other alcohols but i do like those two and i like hard kombucha so I do like to diversify myself. No. Different occasions, different histories in those beverages, different social expectations around some of these beverages. There's room for all of it. So that's kind of how I see it at this point. Yes. And I have seen it mainly. It hasn't brought anyone in who typically doesn't drink alcohol that they would try it. Many people don't drink alcohol, like to drink regular kombucha, but I've typically found that they're not interested in trying the hard kombucha. Yeah, you either want alcohol or you don't. (laughs) There's not much flexibility there. No, there really isn't. But do you think there is perhaps hard kombucha as a sell in that it is a healthier option for alcohol? I definitely do. I think while moderation is still really, really important, just like with any alcohol, I do think that what we're doing certainly by making it as health conscious as we possibly can, which includes relatively low sugar content. It includes extremely clean, fresh ingredients. It includes very authentic, highly lactobacillus rich kombucha culture. All the things we're doing do make it more health conscious than most alcohols, a lot more health conscious than most alcohols. So I think it does make it easier for people to be able to enjoy it and not have to wonder what's in it. A lot of alcohol isn't very transparent about how it's made or what goes into it. And we're trying to be extremely transparent because I think people appreciate that. And maybe it's a relatively small concern for people when they're drinking alcohol, but it's still a concern that they don't really know what's in the beverage. I think that just makes it easier for people to enjoy it completely. And going back with organic, you don't see a lot of organic alcohols on the market. So I think that that's an advantage of yours, and typically hard kombucha is organic. Would you say that's also a big part of who you are is being organic? Yeah, I think it's becoming more clear to people slowly that alcohol labeling requirements, they don't require that winemakers or beer makers or spirit makers say much about how their products are made, what fining agents or other chemicals go into the process of making their products. I think it's becoming more obvious because the vegan community discovered that a lot of wine is not vegan. And that was kind of a shocker because, like, why wouldn't wine be vegan? (laughs) What would be an animal product in a wine? And then they discovered that there's a fining agent that many, many winemakers use, especially in the United States, that's made from fish bladders. And that was kind of a revelation because you don't have to say anything about that on your wine label. There's zero requirement to say about that part of the winemaking process. So uh, there's a lot of stuff in the alcohol business like that. It's just, it's not considered a healthy thing. So maybe that's partly why there's not a lot of requirement like there is in food. So I think as people learn more about that, it's important that they can actually know exactly what is going into even their alcohol. Everything you drink or eat, has some impact on your body and your life. And a lot of people care more and more about that. So that's partly why we make what we make and why we make it the way that we make it and why we put everything that we use on our labels so you can actually know exactly what it is. Speaking about hops in particular, it is 
difficult to grow hops organically, but it is possible. And because hops are a special part of our formulas, we do go out of our way to make sure we can get organic hops and that they're chemical-free. Again, just so that you can enjoy the product without having to wonder about how much chemicals do they use in hop production? (laughs) How much of that is normally in my beer? You don't have to worry about that. And when you do use products that are non-organic, is it mainly that they're not certified organic? Do you still try to see that they don't use a lot of chemicals and other products on them? Yeah, absolutely. It's very important to us, considering that we're making a health-conscious product very intentionally, that there be nothing in the product that's evil, right? Like fluoride, for example. If any of our municipal water sources include fluoride, we are going to filter that out before we make our products because you don't want to actually ingest fluoride. That's not good for anyone. And then we did a seasonal this past year, which was an apple-based seasonal. And we were able to get locally produced apples, which were completely chemical-free. But that orchard was not certified organic because historically, many, many decades ago, there was something going on on that property that wasn't chemical-free. But the apples we got were amazing. They were very fresh, raw untouched apples. So we were grateful that we could get those locally. That became our most important criteria for that particular seasonal product, that they be chemical-free local. And they were a specific variety of apples too. We wanted Gravenstein apples. And so we got those. It's a good point you bring up about how some of the products aren't certified organic, but they have practices such as not spraying them with anything. Because organic is a government label. I think there are good things and there are bad things about it. But Certainly, I don't think that people should avoid a product just because it doesn't have that USDA organic symbol. They need to learn, like you're talking about, about reading the labels, because it does say on your label which products are organic. And there's other ways you can do it. And there's also ways that go beyond organic, things like regenerative agriculture. So I think there's somewhat a little too much reliance on organic. Don't get me wrong. There are good things that it brings up in terms of awareness, but a product can be Organic, I would say, with a lowercase o, even if it doesn't have the USDA label. Absolutely. It is challenging because organic and certified organic is far from perfect. It's far from perfect. But mostly it's still helpful, right? It's still better than not having it at all. Mm -hmm. So it's useful to support it. And it's also, I think most of us agree that it's useful to be dealing with all of it right? What counts as certified organic and what doesn't? What's even better than certified organic? Those are all useful conversations to be having and looking at. But for us, again, our absolute commitment is that it be the highest quality, most health conscious thing possible. And we're going to look for whatever the ingredients are that are going to give us that, even if they're not certified organic, if they are in fact fresher, healthier, better ingredients, we'll probably choose those. But we do have well over 95% of the weight in our products is certified organic products. So if you actually read the label, you'll be clear about that, mostly because our sugar is organic fair trade sugar. And that's one of our primary ingredients because that's what we're fermenting into alcohol. And that's a very important thing to know that you have organic fair trade sugar because a lot of beverages have high fructose corn syrup, including some alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially any alcoholic beverage that's going to be inexpensive 
and it really is going to be cutting corners on their sugar, whatever the source of their sugar is, whether it's dextrose, which comes from corn and or whatever it is. We do have a fairly premium product. It's not outrageously expensive, but it's a premium product because the sugar is fairly expensive. But you do get the benefit of an extremely clean fermentation and a product that's free of pretty much all chemicals from the sweetener. And also, as far as sugar production goes, treats farmers relatively well. Those things are all important. Yes, fair trade is very important. And I think we are seeing more awareness in that as organic has grown as a whole. You see a lot of organic things, but then you have to wonder, especially within certain food industries, because some do have a lot of labor abuse in terms of the countries that they originate from. So we are seeing that more, too, of things such as fair trade and companies talking about the specific practices of the farmers they grow, not just with the way the food's grown, that nothing is sprayed on it, but also that they source their food from workers who were paid a fair wage. Yeah. And fair trade is also extremely challenging, even more so probably than organic, especially for a product like sugar or tea, which is mostly coming from another country, right? We're not really producing sugar or tea in the United States, not very much. So you're either getting it from South America or from India, primarily. So the fair trade certification, or at least whatever rigor is being done to ensure that that supply chain is honoring the people who are actually producing the product is really, really important in those areas, especially sugar and tea. I mean, notoriously, part of this slave trade. So those two things for us are extremely important because they are foundations for our beverage, but also because those particular industries are notorious for not treating people well at all. When it comes to foods from other countries, I think it does point to a lot of products in the sweet section, certainly sugar, like you talked about. I've also seen it with chocolate. And that's why when I see a candy simply labeled organic, I'm like, okay, that's a good start, but at what price did this organic chocolate, this organic sugar come from? I need to see candy bars that talk about doing more than just being organic. And another one I think of, and this will definitely apply to kombucha, is a lot of fruits come from Mexico or South America, and it's very important in that too, especially because that is used in a lot of kombuchas such as yours. Sure is. Yeah, the whole supply system is challenging, for sure, especially when you try to scale a product to be accessible to most people in terms of its price. Really, in a lot of ways, you can't do it. We still have a premium product, and it costs what it costs. If you want all of those qualities in your product, it's going to be $6.99. It's not going to be $1.99. You can't do it. And I think that's also really important for people to, to learn. Same, same thing in clothing. You hear a lot about fast fashion and the impact of that in the world. You can get real clothing. Your shirt might cost $200, but that's what it costs. <laughs> you can't get 50 shirts for $200 if you want the materials and the people involved to be honorable. <laughs> it doesn't happen at that price. So I think it's important for people to learn that. And it's not part of American modern culture. We're fast and cheap. We love fast and cheap. But those are important things for people to understand. Yes, 
certainly are. In terms of your ingredients, do you try to source any local? I mean, it's tough for us, right? Sugar and tea. True. <laughs> that doesn't really come from anywhere around us, but we do. We do whatever we can. So we have a strawberry lemon kombucha, which is exquisite. And all of the strawberries that we're using are from California. They're certified organic California strawberries. We have the apple seasonal that I mentioned. Those apples came from Santa Cruz County very close to us. We do use quite a bit of lemon and lime, all certified organic. That's a mix. About half of it comes from California and the other half comes from Mexico because of the seasonality of those different climates. What else do we use? One of our favorite ingredients is also something that we can't get locally, really, which is ginger. Ginger right now, the only really reliable quality organic ginger comes from Peru. And that's where we're getting our ginger from. Luckily, it's relatively easy to trace that product to the particular farms because there's not that many. There's a couple of farms that have specialized in this. Just in the last 10 years, this ginger became much more popular, I think, than it ever was, at least real, fresh, organic ginger. So that's one of our, certainly our compromises. We can't get most of our stuff locally, but we do the best we can with where we are getting it from. And it's definitely worth the effort because I think you can feel it in the product when you drink it. You certainly can taste it when you have the very best quality ingredients. So yeah, that's what it looks like for Dr. Hops. I would think so, especially with something like fruit. I think that would be the most important one to get local because other products can last for longer, but fruit, it goes quicker. So that you're able to get it from a local source, it doesn't take that long to then get to the brewery where you mix it in? Yeah, I mean, every ingredient that we're currently using is an unpasteurized raw ingredient. So, yeah, it can't be around for very long. (laughs) I mean, except for the sugar and tea, which are dried. All those fruits, so ginger comes from Peru frozen, so it can't get here fast enough otherwise. If you want the freshest, most enlivening stuff, which certainly is what we're after, the closer the better. Mm-hmm. So as you've talked about the different fruits and ingredients that you buy for Dr. Hops, let's now get into the different flavors of Dr. Hops that they make up. Awesome. Yeah. I mentioned the strawberry lemon. That flavor really is all about the fresh strawberries. It's very rare to find any food or beverage in the consumer packaged goods industry that's using real strawberries, mostly because it's expensive, but also, well, I guess it's mostly just because it's expensive. <laughs> You're like, But strawberry flavoring is not very good. We don't really like any flavorings, but strawberries particularly difficult. So to have a beverage that's made with real, fresh, raw strawberries is pretty awesome. When you taste it, you're like, wow, this is what strawberries are actually taste like. (laughs) And with the kombucha, we have this huge advantage. We're making a product that's a live, unfiltered, unpasteurized product, right? So we can actually capture, because of the acidity of kombucha and the alcohol content that we have in our beverages, We can capture all of those flavors in a safe way that almost nothing else can. And yes, we have to keep it refrigerated to make it as stable as we want it to be. But you still get the benefit of this real raw fruit flavor that is very unusual and very amazing. So that's what the strawberry lemon that we do is all about. 
if you try it, you'll discover what I'm talking about. We do something similar with our hoppy one. We have a heavily dry hopped kombucha. Again, we're using all organic hops from Yakima Valley in Washington. And Yakima is the best hop growing area in the United States, especially for very pungent, fruity, aromatic hops, which is what we're favoring. And for us, it's about getting this really fresh hop flavor into the beverage that's exposed in a very fun way because there's no malt like you would normally have in a beer. There's no bitterness really from the hops because we're not heating them at all, which is kind of what brings out most of the bitterness. And so you get to taste the hops in this very open, fresh, fun way that you normally don't. The similar is the ginger lime that we do. We're using this amazing organic ginger product from Peru and these fresh organic limes from the West Coast. And again, you get this exquisitely fresh, live, vibrant experience that you really can't get in most other foods and beverages. And then we do the same thing with our rosé. We're using Syrah and Pinot grapes, in this case from Washington, and even though we're not making a wine, we are using these awesome wine grapes. And there is some fermentation of the grapes. So you do get some wine fermentation-like uh, qualities and some of the flavors. But in our case, a lot of wine is fairly challenging to drink, even when it's good wine. It's not easy drinking usually. Our product, even at 11%, our kombucha rosé, it's just a little bit of that wine characteristic. The rest is this fresh sort of sweet-sour kombucha that's very clean, somewhat tart, not vinegary. So you get just an exquisitely drinkable rosé <laughs> product. And it's really features the rosé grapes in a really fun way. So that's kind of what we're doing with all of our things. We're featuring a fruit or the hops or a combination of fruits in a very fun, vibrant way. And the one with the hops kombucha, that's the kombucha IPA. So you have one of yours that's essentially similar to a beer, and as you're talking about, the kombucha rose is kind of like a wine. So I see that you were trying to go somewhat with your love of different alcohols of making kombucha flavors similar to other types of alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. We think that Hard kombucha is still very new, and many, many, many people who might love it haven't had much of it or haven't had the one that they like or whatever. And one of the ways to make it accessible to people is to kind of relate it to another beverage that they might know and love. So for us, our strawberry lemon, it's kind of like our take on a mimosa. It's 8%. It's very fruit forward. It's way less sweet than an actual mimosa, but it's very fun, brunchy, awesome beverage on those occasions that you might want a mimosa. Our kombucha IPA is, you know, it's that. It's inspired by a beer, by a very fruity IPA style. But again, it's not a beer. There's no malt. There's no bitterness. It's a different thing, but it is a lot more beer-like because of the hops. And then our ginger lime is inspired by a Moscow mule. It's a very, very popular and much loved cocktail style. And it's 10% alcohol, kind of similar to what a lot of cocktails might be. And then our rosé is, again, we call it a rosé because we're using real rosé grapes. And it's inspired by, by that wine style. It's 11% alcohol, very close to most rosés. 
That way, again, it's just a fun way for people to access the world of hard kombucha that they might not otherwise feel like they understand or something. Now, would you recommend that people consume these different types of Dr. Hops in the same way that they consume their respective alcohol flavors? Like, for instance, should you drink the rosé in a wine glass? Yeah, pretty much all Dr. Hops flavors taste great in a fluted style glass because there is some nice aroma in Dr. Hops, mostly because everything has some dry hopping, primarily for that reason, so that you can make a kombucha that smells interesting and fun. Also has a little bit more intrigue. But yes, I think they're more versatile than most other traditional wines or beers. They're also just great in regular glassware or even on ice. If it's hot, you can put Dr. Hops on ice. And because the flavors are so fresh and fairly intense, they stand up really well on ice. You wouldn't say that about most beer (laughs) or even wine. (laughs) But I do think it's fun to drink the styles out of their related glassware. If it's fun, that's also part of the game. Oh, me too. And I mean, I'm very particular on that, actually. I'm working at buying all the different types of beer glasses for the different beers that I have, essentially, my home bartending. Yeah, at the very least, it's fun to do that, right? And it does have an impact on the way the beverage is encountered in your mouth, how the glass is shaped and certainly affects how it smells, but also how the liquid's delivered to your mouth and your tongue. And it really actually has an impact. But I think ultimately it is mostly just super fun to all the different shapes and why they go with different styles. It is really fun. It's a lot of fun. Do you have plans for future flavors to contribute to this funness? Yes, we certainly do. We are out to make hard kombucha styles, essentially, that are, they may never be as established as Pilsner is in the beer world or a Cabernet is in the wine world. But We do think there are some things that hard kombucha does particularly well as a type of alcoholic category. So we're out to really, really establish those things, make essentially iconic, classic hard kombuchas. But at the same time, we love to experiment with things and try all kinds of stuff. So as we are able to get our core products established and build a really strong foundation for Dr. Hops, we'll do all kinds of experimenting, especially in seasonal beverages. We have a pineapple habanero that we absolutely love. We have the apple pie that we did this past winter that we love. We have a raw cacao kombucha, which is surprisingly good. So all kinds of things we want to do, but, you know, one step at a time. How about a kombucha based on the porter beer? That's my favorite beer. Well, the chocolate we did was a little bit like a stout or a porter. Not very much like a stout. I mean, a stout and a porter, they're such deep beers. It's kind of insane to even try to do that with a kombucha, but why not? Crazier things have been done. (laughs) So sure, you can help us figure out how to do it. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to do it. And of course, I'll be glad to be a taster of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we'd love that. And so as a big thing of yours has been making the kombucha similar to other types of alcohol. Was this something that you had seen done by other kombucha companies, or is this something that you thought would make yours unique to the ever-growing market of hard kombucha? It is being done. We don't think it's being done particularly well. There are some products out there. Boochcraft has a grapefruit hibiscus, which is kind of like a rosé. It's less like a rosé than ours is, but it's also called grapefruit hibiscus. But it's pink. It's 
kind of like that, right? But I have seen a couple of hard kombucha companies really leaning into calling their products after cocktails, for example, which we looked at doing very carefully too, but ultimately thought it would be better for consumers if we told them exactly what was in the product, not the style we were shooting for. Like ginger lime is pretty clear. It's got ginger and lime in it rather than Moscow mule or kombucha mule or something like that. So we have seen it a little bit. I still don't think that the hard kombucha category has really been developed in a way to make it substantial in the long run. And we want it to be substantial in the long run. Kombucha is such a fascinating culture and it's not a specific culture. It's a whole blend of different bacteria and yeasts. It's so fascinating to work with that kind of medium. And we think it should be a very significant long-term thing. And I think if we establish some of the most high quality things that hard kombucha can do, that it will help. It will help to establish hard kombucha as a real thing. And that's what, you know, we think that that, that will be fun for the world. I think so too. Along with these other new flavors that you're working on developing, could you see yourself expanding into other types of kombuchas or other types of beverages? Yes, absolutely. Primarily because we recognize the inherent challenges of making alcohol. There are plenty of occasions when and you don't want alcohol and there's plenty where you sh- actually shouldn't drink it. <laughs> so especially as the world it seems to be more and more open to, you know, certainly the cannabis industry has become much more mainstream, quasi-illegal thing. We have mushrooms with psilocybin now being legalized in some places and getting a lot of credit in therapeutic uses. I think there's a lot of things that can be done beyond alcohol. And I think for us, whatever those things might be, including just more functional, lighter recreational beverages that might not have any serious psychoactive compounds in them. We're interested in all of that. And so ultimately, we would love to have different products like that. But again, for us, we're still very small. We're still trying to establish something in a new category and open up the category to all the people in the world that love alcohol, at least on occasion. That's our focus for now. But we can't help but dream about all these other things. <laughs> right. So if there are other things, though, it would be similar to this in that it'd be something functional. You just wouldn't make a conventional beverage. I mean, we would certainly want to make something that we feel is a lot better than anything else of its type. <laughs> That's what we do. I can't see the future, so I don't know. But as both Tommy and I, we do have a soft spot for recreation and especially in beverage. So that's why we make an alcoholic beverage, but we would want it to be something that's really interesting. For me personally, it's got to be original in some very significant way, or I just get bored. So so that's what you could count on from us is that we're going to do something that's creative, original, distinct, and awesome. This is definitely the right time to do what you're talking about, because one of the things I've really noticed expanding is beverages. I mean, sure, there have always been some, but I feel they're now more than ever. I think the ones that interested me the most were prebiotic beverages because you need both prebiotics and probiotics and also postbiotics. And so since there are so many probiotic beverages on the market now, there's now a new thing for prebiotics and some even made by companies that also make probiotic beverages. 
Yeah, the cool thing about kombucha is it can easily be pre and probiotic. It's difficult to reach whatever the scientific standard for probiotic is in terms of billions of CFUs, which is a way to measure the viability of live cultures and things. It's difficult to reach 20, 30, 40 billion CFUs in an alcoholic beverage, especially one that's 10% alcohol. But you can have a ton of prebiotic ingredients. In fact, one of the best prebiotics is dead yeast cells. And if you make a kombucha product and you don't filter out all those dead yeast cells, those are awesome prebiotics. So we have a lot of that in our product. We haven't found it necessary or important yet to do much calling out about that, but I think that's changing. I think people are more and more aware of how the microbiome works and what are the different things that factor into the health of the microbiome and prebiotics and postbiotics are part of that. So all of that is very interesting to us and partly why we do such an unadulterated, unfiltered, raw product. At the beginning, you talked about how years ago there was a scare of too much alcohol in kombucha. And can you tell us a little bit about the process of what makes a kombucha a hard kombucha versus a regular one that is essentially low enough in alcohol that it doesn't have to be marketed as that? Yeah, that's a pretty awesome topic, actually, because I think it was 2010 when somehow, I don't know if it was the FDA or the alcohol regulating industry or who it was, somebody figured out there was around 2% alcohol in a lot of kombucha. And the legal limit currently in the United States is a half a percent. So it was three times as much alcohol as it was supposed to have in it to be a regular non-alcoholic beverage. So since then, kombucha industries had to reformulate how they make kombucha so they can keep the alcohol content so low. And that's too bad, really, because if you make a really strong, healthy kombucha in your house, or for us, our mother culture that forms the foundation for all Dr. Hop's beverages, it's a very strong, awesome kombucha, regular kombucha, and it's 2% alcohol. Ours is maybe even a little higher, two and a half percent. GT's original formula is somewhere around that, one and a half, two percent. That's what a really full live kombucha is. That's how much alcohol it produces. It's not enough to get you drunk. You'd have to drink like 20 bottles and you'd be sick of drinking so much kombucha, like just so much liquid. But yeah, that's really what kombucha is supposed to be, one and a half, two percent. That's how it kind of comes out when you let the culture do what it wants to do. But the alcohol limits what well below that right now. So commercial kombucha producers have to do something to limit their alcohol. Again, we don't have to do that because we don't have to worry about that. We're clearly labeling ourselves as a recreational alcoholic beverage. But I think some of the magic of kombucha is, again, that's not enough. 2% alcohol is not enough to get you intoxicated. But it does have an effect. It has a mild effect. And I think that's an important part of real kombucha. So it's a little disappointing to me that the alcohol limit is currently only a half a percent. It just doesn't let commercial producers make really great kombucha. So in addition to the health benefits of hard kombucha over other alcohols, would you say that another advantage of hard kombucha is you can drink it and not have to worry so much about the effects that it has on you? I think there's a little bit of an effect 
especially if you have a really fresh, high quality hard kombucha, it is a little easier for your body to process the alcohol. It has some of the natural aspects of the kombucha, including B vitamins, including the raw organic acids that kombucha makes. Those do help your body process alcohol. So there's a little bit of an effect like that. It's pretty minor, though. I mean, if you're drinking a 10% alcohol beverage, even if it's hard kombucha, you're drinking 10% alcohol. It's, it's not going to have that big of an impact on it. But ultimately, it does have a different feeling. It is a different experience than a beer or a wine or a cocktail, especially if you keep the sugar content low. Then you really have the experience that, wow, this is very health conscious. It's still recreational. It's not medicine, like in some sort of medicinal way. But it is distinct from other alcohols, and I think that's a big part of the fun. And now for the part of the show that might not translate well to a podcast, but I'm going to do it anyways. So the company name is Dr. Hops, and one of the beers has hops in it, yet the others don't. Obviously, hops is not referring to the ingredient, but it's more clear of what it means when you see this wonderful drawing of a rabbit on each of your cans. So explain a little bit about the name and the rabbit mascot you have. Yes. I wish you all could see the can because it's beautiful. So first, all of our products do have hop, but mostly it's a very light layer effect, not the feature of the product. In one case, it is the feature. In our kombucha IPA, hops are the feature. But everything has some dry hopping in it for aroma and balance, even the kombucha rosé. So there is that part of our name, Dr. Hops, that is from our love of the hop plant. It's an amazing plant. And then the other part of the name comes from the rabbit. And Dr. Hops it was a real rabbit. Like my wife adopted Dr. Hops right after I met my wife. And it was the first time I'd ever had a rabbit. And she was a little fluffy lion head rabbit. Beautiful, beautiful rabbit, quite feisty. And her name was Dr. Hops. And I thought that was the coolest name I'd ever heard of for a rabbit. And then later, when Tommy and I founded the company and decided we were going to make the world's greatest hard kombucha, it seemed like the perfect name to honor this creature, honor the importance of all the different diversity on the planet, all the animal life on the planet, to honor my wife and how awesome she is. And the rabbit was so cool looking that she inspired this logo that we now have, which is a rabbit with this very energetic mane, just a bright, beautiful, fluffy, fiery mane all around her. And that's our spirit animal, Dr. Hops. And she really does kind of guide Tommy and I in everything that we do to honor all of that that she represents. We're just about out of time. But before we go, let the listeners know where they can go online to learn more about Dr. Hops' real hard kombucha. And there they'll be able to see what exactly this rabbit looks like. Yeah, thank you. So drhops.com is our website, drhops.com, drhops.com. And there you can also, if you're in California or Oregon, you can order the product. We ship almost daily. We have a beautiful four-pack. You could try all of our things for very little cash outlay. You can also order Dr. Hops by the case, and you can also read a little bit about Tommy and myself and study the products themselves also. So that's probably your best place. Certainly, it's your best place to go if you want to find a location near you that sells Dr. Hops. 
We're currently available in California, Arizona, and Florida, but we're also in the process of expanding quite a bit to new places this year, especially New England. So look out for that. And uh, yeah, we have a Instagram and a Facebook page and a Twitter account as well. But I think the website's your best source, just drhops.com. Sounds good. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the program. Yeah, Aaron, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for producing this content for people all over the world who are interested in it. It's great to have a platform like this. Well, thank you, and thank you for making a truly wonderful hard kombucha for everyone to enjoy. You're welcome. It is our pleasure, truly, (laughs) to be able to do that. If we could just make amazing hard kombucha and have everyone in the world enjoy it, that's all we really want. (laughs) But (laughs) there's a business that goes along with that, too to make that possible, and that's Dr. Hops. Well, I hope that one day everyone in the world gets to have it, and I look forward to the future flavors we can expect from Dr. Hops. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are now released every Wednesday. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode, and to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or... Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.